Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to episode 126 of the BJJ Brick Podcast. My name is Byron. I'm here with my good buddy, Gary. Gary, what's happening? How's everybody, how's everybody doing today? Hope everybody's doing great. I'm sure we are out there. Um, I, I'm doing great. We have an interview with Sean Williams. And uh, Sean, I, I know most of you guys probably know who he is. Uh, he's the fifth American black belt. He's a black belt under Henzo Gracie. Uh, they even got a guard named after him, Sean Williams guard. Uh, you know, I know they don't have a Gary Hall guard or a Byron <laughs> Jabara guard, but so I mean, when you got a guard named after you, you are the man. But uh, that's a great guy to learn from. So stay tuned for interview and uh, listen to what Sean has to say. Yep, and you know him from countless times you've watched uh, competition video. He's done a ton of commentary. We talk about that a little bit too, but uh, he's always. Uh, it seems like one of the main people that's given live commentary and, and just uh, helping make live grappling more of a spectator sport, I think, uh, especially over the internet in, in the late years here. Yeah, and I think everybody really likes just – he's so knowledgeable and uh, he knows all those guys. So when he is uh, interviewing – or not interviewing, uh, commentating, it just makes it that much that much better to watch and listen. So uh, just not only a great uh, – Jiu-Jitsu artist, a great commentator. Yeah, a lot of stuff this uh, this interview, and we're going to have it all uh, on the show notes, which can be conveniently emailed to you in your email inbox. If you go to the website, bjjbrick.com or our Facebook page, there's a little form to fill out with your name and email address. And every Tuesday, boom, we'll send you out an email with the show notes. Pretty easy. Pretty easy, just like Byron said. All you got to do is boom. And it's there. Boom. Boom's the keyword. But, uh, <laughs> hey, also check out uh, Byron's audiobook. Um, it's called Your First Year in BJJ. It's only $11.99, and it's two and a half hours of just like our podcast, Byron talking, walking you through your first year of jiu-jitsu. I mean, it can be anything from uh, how to make jiu-jitsu more fun to tournament prep to what moves to concentrate on. So it's it's just a great uh, guide for your first year, which in my opinion is your hardest year. Trying to trying to start the sport and know what to learn, what to do. Um, it's just a that first year is a little rough. So uh, this is a tool to get you through that first year. So once you survive that first year, there's a really really good chance you're going to keep going and going and going forever. So uh, check it out. Uh, there's a link to it on the show notes. Your first year in BJJ, uh, only eleven dollars and ninety nine cents from. None other than Byron Jabara. There we go. Thanks, Gary, for those kind words, and I hope the book helps some people out there. Gary, uh, we were talking about before the show starts our quote of the week. Not exactly a jiu-jitsu quote, but I think we could relate it uh, to what we do here on the uh, podcast. Yeah, it seems like a lot of our quotes lately haven't come from jiu-jitsu people, but um, as long as it relates, that's all that counts. But this time we have a quote from a from an individual named Miles Kington. Who he is, I have no clue. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Maybe somebody can Google him. But uh, his uh, quote is, Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. So once again, knowledge is a, is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. And I think that could really apply to all of us. Um, 
here in jiu-jitsu. And basically, he's talking about, you know, you can know a ton of moves. Uh, think how many moves there are in jiu-jitsu, how many different moves, concepts you can use. But uh, you got to know how to apply them when, they're, when you're rolling. Uh, if you don't, it's like not you know, wisdom is not putting in a fruit salad. You have to know when to use them, when it's, when it's available and use, use those moves properly. Exactly right, Gary. Uh, especially in uh, today's modern day, you could easily watch you know, like 50 moves in an hour, or you could even watch somebody perform, you know, a hundred different guillotines in four minutes or something like that. You know, you might increase your knowledge of, of what's going on there, but you're really not getting any better at jujitsu. It's just, kind of fun to watch you know you're not actually uh, spending the time and and doing the work behind that so if if you're one of the people and there's plenty of people and i've been the this one of these people but you want to learn a new move online all the time so you come to class every day a new idea and you try it and you try to figure it out and and it seems like by the time you get to the next class you saw something else that was cool and you want to try this one out this time um so you're going to kind of dabble around in a lot of things um you're not really getting that wisdom, that deeper understanding of the technique. So uh, just I urge you to consider spending more time with a smaller number of moves. Um, if, if you're one of the people that likes to just try random things all the time, try to figure out something that would be good for your game. Spend some time in that. See if you actually become good at something opposed to just knowing a lot about jiu-jitsu. Yeah. I always like that other quote. Uh, you know, I know we're on the quote of the week, but I'll throw that other one out there that – I would rather be have a few tools that are really good than a hundred tools that I'm only halfway good at. And uh, it's like I'd rather just have a few moves that I'm really, really good at, can hit them in different spots that you know always work for me, than be okay at you know fifty different moves that may work, may not work, or may only work against a brand new person. So uh, it's uh, good advice to uh, not just uh, you know keep learning everything. It'll, you know, find out what works for your game, drill it over and over, get better with it, and then move on to something else. There you go. Well said. And uh, yeah, we're not really talking about fruit salad or fruit in general or vegetables, but um, speaking able of fruit to kind salad, of like that I am kind of hungry. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can't help fruit you today, salad. Gary. Yeah, I'd like a fruit salad right about now. That's a a sometimes healthy snack. Yes, sometimes. Because if you eat too much fruit salad, it's just like eating a bunch of sugar. I found that yep. out some, uh, myself. Or you can put a ton of like whipped cream on it or something. <laughs> you always know how to live large, Gary. Yep, you living large is the key. Whipped cream and salads and all that stuff. Yep. Speaking about living large, I want to talk to you guys today about 6 a.m. jujitsu. Man, 6 a.m. is early for a lot of people. Um, you know, that's a tough one to get to, but not for uh, Mr. Eric Beyer. Yep, and go to ericbeyer.com, and then uh, the article is What Motivates Me for 6 a.m. BJJ Class. And uh, that could... Okay, getting up at 6 a.m., that's early. But being somewhere at 6 a.m. is a whole different kind of early, Gary. Yeah, so normally you got to get up maybe 4.30, 5 uh, depending on traffic, depending on you know what you got to eat, so uh, that's even tougher. Yeah, I we're talking about the audiobook, uh, your first year in BJ, and how hard it is to, to get that first year. You, you know, a lot of people, I would say most, go to jujitsu in the evening or after work, and it's a little bit more easier on your schedule. Um, 
you know you don't have to change things quite around so much. But if you if you go to work at eight o'clock in the morning and you're going to go to in morning jujitsu, suddenly you have to go to bed earlier. You might feel a little bit tired at work. You I, it it seems like a bigger uh, change on your. Um, off the mat life to go to a super early class like this, but uh, Eric yeah, is motivated. I mean, trying to get up in the in the morning is tough. I mean, you probably have to have a fruit salad just to get you motivated. <laughs> yes, well, that's uh, that's one way to get started there, I guess. I had to throw that in there. <laughs> You're always throwing fruit salads everywhere, Gary. Okay, but uh, our, our friend Eric uh, has, has written this article about what motivates him. He trains at Alvarez BJJ, and um, he feels like uh very connected to his team and that's a big uh, motivating factor for when you're when you're laying there in bed it could be i don't know five o'clock in the morning and you're just thinking oh i could take the day off he's got something in his head that kind of chimes in and says not today buddy you got to go to class yeah when i was reading this i just kept thinking about what a great teammate this guy would be you know he's just wants to make sure he's there for your team if i'm not there he actually said somebody may not have a training partner. And it seems like his whole team is like that. He, he talks about uh, one time missing a class or sleeping through the alarm. And uh, a brown belt training partner, you know, kind of gave him a little grief on Facebook about it. And he's like, I've never been late again. And, uh, you know, the brown belt is just all in good fun. But it's like they just seem like a great team, uh, you know, really care about each other. And, uh, you know, when you have camaraderie like that, I guarantee it's a lot easier to get up at uh, – uh, 4.30 to get to that 6 a.m. class. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, from my experience, a morning class is an interesting uh, crew that, that develops that tight uh, tight bond that you get, that you don't always get with like a large class. I mean, you get those kind of maybe clicks compared to a smaller class that's in the morning. Uh, everybody is just forced to you know, work with everybody else, and it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a different dynamic. And I'm always, just to get off topic here, fascinated by the it's always fun to see somebody in the morning class shows up in the in the evening class and it's like who's this guy he's pretty good yeah. and he's been training for a couple of years and you just never go to morning class and it's kind of fun so uh i, I don't know that's just kind of a fun way to think about morning class um, i'm on his website right now and uh something i just noticed is they have a nice group picture and i see eric there uh, standing in the back and behind everybody they've got like giant things from the movie 300 uh, oh, I just realized pictures. that is from the movie 300. Yep. So uh, that'll keep you motivated, Gary. Yeah, that'll get you <laughs> going in there. <laughs> but uh, he, I mean, he, I think the main thing that he's talking about when he, and I suggest you read the article, especially if you're doing a morning class or you're maybe lacking a little motivation, is just the, the, the process of being part of a team. And it's not just about like your jujitsu, it's about helping your teammates. So, it, we all go through those weeks and hopefully not months where you feel like, man, I didn't get any better this week. But, but as a teammate, you could feel like, well, my teammates, you know, they're kind of getting better and I'm, I'm part of that. And, and it's part of my responsibility to get to class and help, help my team. Um, so Gary, what was your biggest takeaway from this article? You know, going back at, like I said earlier, just the camaraderie. I just, uh, I don't know. I was just thinking I'd like to train with Eric, a guy who, uh, uh, cares that much about his teammates and uh, you know never misses because uh, he's worried about his teammates but the other thing I like is like man the guy you can just tell he, he's diligent keeps track of stuff he's uh, he, he's like hey I'm 143 classes in you know he's already he's keeping track of his classes knows everything he does and uh, 
I just think, man, that's a probably a great gym and a great bunch of teammates to train with. Yep, and I, I guarantee you, okay, 143 class has not been training like a you know forever. But there's a lot of people that with colored belts around their waist that if they were forced to do jujitsu at six in the morning, it would have never got past that first month. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's yeah. a difficult hurdle. So the motivation that he uses for, to get there for six a.m. should be more than enough to get you to go after work. Yeah. Well, what even gets me even more, it's not the article, but if you right next to the article, it talks about who he is. Here's a guy who showed up in his first year for 143 classes at 6 a.m. And uh, he's a regional VP of sales for Claire Solutions. Uh, he's also uh, works on web design projects, Boy Scouts, spending time with his uh, wife. And on the side, he owns a glue company. You know, he offers website hosting, designs. SEO, whatever that is, and marketing. He's a Google <laughs> reseller for email for businesses. Like, man. And on top of all that, the type of guy this guy is, he actually uh, helped us out with our sound. He just called in out of the blue, said he's better, He's he knows what he's doing, and uh, and I know kind of walked Byron through some stuff. So uh, here's a guy who is busy, and, you know, I always hear the excuse, I, I can't make it to class. Uh, you know, talk to Eric. <laughs> Eric can make it to class and make a living and have a business on the side and work of boy scouts and uh he's uh his plate is full yeah he's he's doing it um swing by the website uh, eric e-r-i-k and then b-e-y-e-r.com and you'll see in this article what motivates me for 6 a.m bj class if you miss all that it's all in the show notes you can go to the website or check your email box inbox for the uh show notes Gary, I, I don't know why we would wait any longer to get to Sean Williams. Uh, what do you think, buddy? I think the only reason somebody would wait any longer is to go get themselves a bowl of fruit salad <laughs> for this great interview. So grab yourself a, a bowl of fruit salad. Keep the tomatoes out of it uh, or the tomatoes. Keep those out of there and uh, sit down and enjoy this interview with Sean Williams. He is the most interesting grappler. In the world, he has never needed to go check a noise in the middle of the night. He just lays and waits, ready to play guard. Long ago, there was a guard called the Caterpillar Guard. This guard was pretty ineffective. After spending two weeks working on this guard, he made a few changes and it became what is now known as the Butterfly Guard. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends. All right, my friends, I'm happy to bring Sean Williams to the BJJ Brick Podcast. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Byron. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, happy to have you on the show. Um, you have a familiar voice, and we'll get to that. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about yourself and, and, and what, you, what you do in BJJ. Uh, well, you know, I've been training for, this will be my 20th year, so I started training in 96 uh, over with Henzo Gracie Academy uh, and Henzo, um, and I was uh, very fortunate to be there, of course. I mean, I went I went in 96 when uh, I just followed my heart and my passion and went over, and then, I, you know, I'm on the, sharing the mats with uh, guys who were ahead of me, like, you know, Besides Hanzo is, you know, Matt Serra, Ricardo Almeida, Rodrigo Gracie, John Danaher and I came up at the same time. And uh, not to mention all the other killers, uh, guys like Joe D'Arcy, who the Darce choke is named after. And, you know, all, all sorts of 
cool things went on at that time, and I was just very lucky to come from there. So um, now I moved over to the to the West Coast uh, uh, quite a while ago, but to, to sort of spread what uh, we we have over at Hensel's onto the West Coast side. So um, to help spread that style of jujitsu over here, I guess you could say. Besides, you know, Half's got it covered up north, so we we have to cover it down south. <laughs> what, what do you mean by that style of jujitsu? Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's a, I, I think I, I always say I was lucky to go to Henzo school and I, the reason why I believe I was lucky is because it is a, an extremely well-rounded style. I, I, uh, how I got into jujitsu, just like a lot of other people, I think is I saw the UFC, saw the UFC, I think number two, uh, saw Hoist fight. I, I was a karate guy. Yeah, I was, uh. 17 16 17 at the time i saw that maybe 17 8 yeah 17 anyway, i'd done karate since i was 12 and um thought like everybody else oh man there's some karate guys at this tournament watch this and then all of a sudden you know uh voice <laughs> just destroys everybody and makes it look uh easy and I, that didn't really intrigue me because i i just liked fighting i really enjoyed um my training i had great instructors my karate instructors were great they were very open to everything we did a little bit of of grappling but um uh, you know a little bit of takedowns uh so from like japanese jiu-jitsu and um so they were they were pretty open and uh that was my entree into like whoa what is this jiu-jitsu stuff and as i sort of progressed i saw Hensel fight um, in World Combat Championship back in 1995. And at that point, I had seen Hickson fight and I had seen Hoyce fight. Um, and I was considering, like, I really would like to do this jiu-jitsu stuff more. I'd like to learn it. There was nothing in Indiana um, to learn that from. So I was considering moving to California. And then I saw Henzo fight. And, I mean, if even, even if you've not much training experience, if you watch the difference between how Henzo fought at World Combat Championship how Hoist fought at UFC and how Hickson fought in the old Valley Tudo uh, days, you would see a distinct difference between those guys. Um, uh, and what I saw is that Hensel was much more well-rounded, and that really appealed to me because I came from a striking background, and I thought that he was moving well. I thought that he was taking shots like wrestlers, and it was very he was very aggressive and uh that appealed to me, and then fortunately, he, he I saw an ad in Black Belt Magazine, um, good old print media marketing, but I saw an ad in Black Belt Magazine that he uh, and his former partner were opening a school in New York City, and um, at that time, I was going to college upstate New York my first year of college and just decided, you know what, like, I'd like to go check this out, and uh, so I went to visit, and bang, that was it. I, he was such a such an amazing human that I just said, yeah, well, this is... Not only does he fight awesome, but he's so not super nice. So I didn't even go to California. I just went straight to New York. I moved to New York and, and started training. Wow. Sounds like you, as soon as you got a taste of it, you jumped in the deep end. Yeah, I did. I just, uh, I think I've always been that way. And fortunately, I've had a lot of support, like a very supportive family. Um, and so I just, yeah, I just followed what I felt like doing and, and it worked out well. Well, cool. That's always uh, it's cool to see somebody do that, and it and it and it pay off. You know, sometimes people will just jump into something, and it, it is like a big struggle. But it sounds like it was a good thing for you. Why would your voice be familiar to a lot of the audience? 
Yeah, I, I uh, commentate, you know, the IBJJF events and try to try to stick my uh, technical prowess as anywhere I can in the, into that uh, element and environment. So, yeah, I, I've commentated since 2007, I think. 2000, I can't even remember. It's been such a while, long time now. So, um, but uh, yeah, that's it. That's cool. It's to me as. As a fan, the the broadcast is so much more valuable to to get the commentary and to you know. As a new fan, you're you're not knowing who everybody is, or, or a lot most people you don't know who they are, and and so you get you know you bring in like kind of like who this person is, who they fought they fought last year. Okay, that's interesting, and and it builds the the, the athletes, and and that's a, a big thing. And then you're talking about what they're doing. So if I'm confused about what's happening, you're you're, you're a lot of times you're sharing what they're trying to do and and. Uh, and what, what they're going to do, it seems like. And, and it really just makes it, um, it – I think that helps boost it from uh, something that people could uh, – who are really introduced who could watch. And, and maybe people who are just kind of getting into it or are curious about it, they could watch it as well with a good commentary and they could actually enjoy it a lot more. Yeah, I think uh, commentary adds a really important uh – aspect to our our tournaments because you know 10 minutes is not always the most exciting um thing to watch you know anything uh that you don't really know what's going on or uh, isn't the most exciting thing to watch even if you have some interest the more you know about what you're watching i think it it brings up the value and it also gives you uh, kind of a vested interest in watching and learning, um, and especially because our our sport's such a big our sport our martial art it's such a deep martial art. There's so much to learn um, that when you're watching a match, uh, if a good commentator is sitting behind the screen and and they're right on with their technique, they this is what I always attempt to do is to explain what each person is doing, what they will be doing because of the grips. Um, you know, there's only a certain amount of things that you can do from each position. So, uh, and then what guys should be watching out for, how they should counter what's happening. Um, even on failed moves, what the guy was, was attempting to do, because sometimes guys are so good that they may count, keep countering things, but, but those are moves worthy of investigation. So I try to make sure that my the, the listeners always have that that platform to, to learn from. So it's fun for me, and I enjoy doing it. And you know, uh, I, yeah, it's just it, I think it's a very valuable way to learn is to watch. Yeah, and it and it, it makes it it's a great learning tool, and it makes it a lot more entertaining. Um, it's for me. It's hard to keep up with all the different names, and I'm I'm into jujitsu, you know. And who's yeah. this guy? And it seems like you know where they train, and you know who they train with, and and all this stuff, and and it, and it just makes it so much more interesting um, with with the commentary versus just the sounds of the mat or no sound at all. Uh, that could be quite hard to follow, even if you're uh, interested in what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just like a Super Bowl. Uh, if you are, if you were a Denver Broncos fan, man, you were probably, uh, you know, all their players, you were probably freaking out, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but if you were just a general football fan, you're probably having a good time. You probably didn't care if you were really watching the game or, you know, or, but, but the, the more you know about all of the players, quote unquote, or are in this sport, our athletes, 
um, yeah, I think it's the it's easier to follow. It's easier to watch. It's easier to have emotion when you're watching. And then, of course, if you're watching it as a technical in a technical environment, it's it's easier to learn if all those things line up for you. Yeah, it's. It, it, I don't want to keep just talk about commentary for the whole time, but it's it, it's important. And I want to um, people talk about making jujitsu a spectator sport and. It, it finishes are nice and personalities are nice as well you know you get some people with some name recognition in the sport is great but if if i realize because you've told me that this this grip that if he gets it is going to be a big deal and so now i'm watching somebody just try to get a grip but i'm interested in that small aspect of this thing it's it it, it makes it much more spectator friendly um to anybody watching let alone uh, a trained eye Yo, I, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, it's a nice commentary blend when they have a color guy and a technical guy, but, but, uh, that, yeah, that's when you're looking for something specific, uh, it definitely makes, okay, wh- wh- whoa, wow, he's got that grip, as you say, and now I'm going to, what's going to happen? He's going to get the sweeper. Is he going to get the finisher? Yeah, it just absolutely brings more important, a more important element to the contest. Yeah, I agree. So tell me a little bit about what you do off the mats. Um, what do you do in your free time? Uh, well, I mean, my free time is pretty much jujitsu all day long. <laughs> uh, you know, no, really, uh, I am super fortunate. I could do jujitsu uh, and mixed martial arts. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, mixed martial arts too. I came from striking background. I love boxing and wrestling and Thai boxing, and I, I could do it all day long uh, for every waking moment that uh but uh, that i'm not with my wife uh, or family that every waking moment i could be on the mats and enjoying life i don't need another hobby just uh because i i just have so much fun with jujitsu i know people say balance balance but that is my balance that's what makes me happy i'm the happiest when i'm able to train when i'm able to teach when i'm able to yeah, watch tape study moves it just yeah it's what makes me it's what makes me breathe sometimes so <laughs> is that okay what makes you happy is jiu-jitsu and you you're in a position to where you could do a lot of it um how important is it to be um enjoying jiu-jitsu versus like maybe be at a really good school that you don't really enjoy that much um, which position is a stronger spot to be in? Oh man, uh, you know, considering the two. So if we were, we're talking, well, first of all, you have to enjoy it. Even if you're a competitor, I was going to make the distinction between if you want to be a high, high level uh, competitor, um, you're going to need to go into an environment that's that's uh, training hard and smart with a great coach, but. But um, you may not always enjoy every single element of that road because obviously you're going to have to face your fears. You're going to have to train on days that you don't want to train um, and do things that you don't want to do. You're going to have to go do fitness and blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> there are going to be those are going to be those elements. But if you are just a if you just love jujitsu, you're an enthusiast, you're a hot, more or less like a not a diehard competitor. I don't. I guess you could call it hobbyist. I, I like the word enthusiast better because that um, hobbyist, I think, sort of de- degrades the notion of what you're. It's sort of like, hey, haha, you're a hobbyist. You're no good. Like, I, I think an enthusiast is a is a more is a is a little bit better word. But if you're training one, two, three days a week, uh, having a good time and enjoying the road is way more important than like, Hey, I trained at a place where six world champs train, but I hate it. They beat me up every day. And, 
you know, that that's not going to keep you in the art uh, very long, I don't think. So I think it's more important to enjoy the atmosphere, enjoy your training partners, enjoy your coach, um, you know. And then, of course, if you want to push it a little more, you can always do that. But I think it's that's the most important element is to have fun. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And even if you go to that place where they're uh, real hard on you and it sucks the fun right out of it and you go compete and you come up a little short – then you have a lose-lose environment versus uh, if you're enjoying the process and and you compete and, and you come up a little short. At least you had a good time uh, getting to where you're at. No, I 100% agree with you. Yep. Uh, I, I think it's a very important thing. And actually, you know, in, com- in, in competition, uh, for me, one of the best ways they call about getting in the zone, one of the best things that – uh, there are several elements for me personally that to, to bring me out into that environment. But one of them was enjoying the whole entire process. And and that is a credit to the people I was around, my team, my training partners, my, my instructors. Um, and enjoying that process made it made it easier to perform well um not not being under the gun or so to speak or i've had it both i've I've been at tournaments where i'm like what am i doing here i don't feel like competing and and then you don't do as well and the other way around oh wow you enjoy the whole entire process it makes everything better yeah tell me a little bit about your your style of grappling uh, maybe a couple of favorite techniques or, or positions yeah i i'm a big fan of complete uh, grappling i guess i'd call it and that means wrestling judo whatever works uh, in my environment for for judo uh obviously ground the ground techniques from jujitsu and you know we've uh, at Hensel's we did a lot of leg locks and now still you know john denner's really just gone to another planet with those um but i think my style is something that i like uh, from feet all the way to the floor um, I'm not a big fan of just jujitsu that's good on the ground, uh, where it's just um, not taking away anything about guard polling because that's fine, especially if you're outmatched or if you are just training light and you don't want to be injured on your feet. But I believe that that we should all, as jujitsu practitioners, be good from feet to the floor. We should be educate as educated in wrestling and judo as we are on the ground, um, and I think that that's been a weakness for a long time. Uh, in our our martial art and i think it's slowly getting better but um uh, i think it needs more time and i think more coaches need to understand the importance of those things because wrestling for instance um has a huge application on the ground i mean when when you're getting out of almost all of the the bad positions you're you you can get into single legs and different environments of especially single legs those environments happen all the time when you're getting out of cross side when you're in half guard you you know and if if my if my knowledge and wrestling ability is pretty high level then i'll be able to to use that on the ground as well not just not just wrestling on the feet but wrestling on the floor is is very important so i'd say i define my style as a very well-rounded style um feet the floor and um Maybe maybe slightly more on the submission orientated end than just positioning. I think that's what defined everyone in, from Hensel's in my generation is that they were aggressive uh, finishers. We talked about how important it is to have fun uh, while you're training, and that actually is for the long term good uh, for your success. Um, it, is it seems like to me 
a lot of people avoid that wrestling part of the game. Is it? Do you think it's just not as much fun, or do you think they just don't have the the same passion for it, or are they afraid that they're going to get picked up and thrown hard? Or why is there a commonality of like a, a gap in in the stand up part of of grappling? I believe it's the fear of what they don't know. Uh, I wrestled in college, not at a D1 school. I wrestled at a D3 school. But the reason I wrestled is because it was such an important part of jiu-jitsu. But at Hensel's, we had a t- lot of high-level Division One collegiate uh, wrestlers and, and some international wrestlers. And so we had access to a lot of, of this. Um, and I think, you know, primarily – wrestling is misunderstood um, because the people involved potentially haven't had great coaches uh, in wrestling. So it's not learned well uh, and it's not practiced well. Uh, Wrestling doesn't need to be this uh, conflict of (laughs) this. I I have a friend, uh, a good friend of mine named Jamie Crowder. He's he's the Thai boxing instructor at Hensel's and he, I love some of the language that he uses. He, he says when they're sparring, when guys are sparring, you want to have a conversation, not an argument. And, you know, <laughs> I think people think that wrestling is just this huge argument. Um, it's two guys come together and it's like two North magnets. They just come together, boom, and all of a sudden there's this eruption and, and there's somebody flying on their head. But that's not how wrestling should be practiced. Wrestling is extremely technical. I mean, it is super technical and you can flow in wrestling – um, just like you can in jiu-jitsu, if you're two knowledgeable guys, it should be very effortless. You can play on your feet, uh, and it's it's a beautiful thing. I, I used to go to the New York Athletic Club where there's a really strong wrestling program, and there would be guys you know, that were wrestling. You know, they were 60, 60 65 plus years old wrestling around, and it, it was just beautiful. You just see like, wow, that's now that's wrestling. No, nobody's getting thrown on their head. Nobody's slapping each other in the face. It's so technical and it flows just like jujitsu. But I think the the problem with or the our history of in jujitsu is we haven't had enough good wrestling coaches or or a lot of people haven't. And um and it and it makes a big difference. When you can flow on your feet and 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 do that so technically, it's beautiful. There's a YouTube clip. You know, I know there was a documentary about Dave Schultz and a YouTube clip, a great YouTube clip with Dave Schultz and John Smith just drilling. And, and that's how it should be. They're just playing around. Those are two super high-level guys. Um, so if you've never seen that, just YouTube that. It's a great clip of two high-level wrestlers just training effortlessly and playing around. Um, and that's how wrestling can, can be. It can be as technical and flowy as jiu-jitsu. Cool. I was. It remind, this reminds me of a few weeks ago. I was doing a little bit of judo, and uh, the coach was trying to explain about taking it like down a level. Don't you don't need to constantly try to do the big throw on me every time. And he said, if if we were going to box and you put your head down and you just swung as hard as you could at me, what options do I have? I'm going to have to knock you out. You're, you're leaving me nothing to, to. We're not working here. And so uh, he goes, let's work our collar grabs. And he said, if I pick you up, I'll put you down in a manner that's not going to injure you. And and from that point the the whole dynamics of of what we're doing and we're trying to learn some throws it's changed quite a bit because i could remember back i don't know 10 or 11 years ago getting thrown and then also getting landed on by somebody who was like 240 pounds that was miserable and i and i definitely want to avoid that and so setting those parameters like 
we have to work with this. It's the same thing in jujitsu. Like you get a little give and take. You're not always trying to go 100. percent But when we stand up and we try to, you know, do some sparring, it's a it's a lot more tiring for a lot of people. It's a lot more exhaustive. That um, we're just we're giving it that 100 percent effort all the time, and I think it's really help, holding us back sometimes. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Brian. I think when we're training, the best thing that we can do in the beginning is let go. Let it go. Let go of your ego. Let go of whatever it is inside you that wants to win and make it a journey about learning and relaxation and um, and trying your techniques. If you're focused on trying your techniques, then it becomes less about fighting and more uh, about performing the technical aspect which makes it a a, a fun environment um speaking of judo it's the same you know when you train with high level guys if you are trying to to defend a throw without technique you're just trying to muscle i mean that is that's when you get hurt you know that's when you judo you definitely get hurt because your knee's going or something's going because a guy is going to throw you and you're trying to ah, just push away or rather than just playing, going with it, you will, it's effortless. You just get tossed and they, they roll right out, you roll right out, and you're good. You, you keep playing, you know. So um, I think it's a big thing to just uh, let go of what you don't know and try what you know and accept, uh, you know, okay, I got taken down, no problem. Accept it. It's just like jujitsu. If you get arm locked and you're trying your defense – great no problem it's it's technical things are going to happen but if you're just trying to push a guy away or lift a guy up off the floor eh, then probably some some not so good stuff is going to happen you're going to be a little stiff or you're going to get hurt or somebody else is going to get hurt starts to take away from what the learning environment is really meant to be it seems like uh, as we were talking about these different topics, you, you learning leg locks earlier on, and then the, the 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 wrestling concepts and judo concept, and 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 playing, and and not going you know super hard and fighting everything. Uh, those two kind of go together to me. Um, if a lot of times I think people are amazed with the with the leg locks and how uh, complex they are, because every time they end up in a leg lock, they tap right away to something that's like coming at them like really fast. And, and the, the same thing, the ability to kind of play with it and then um, and, and work with it, I think, might be an important factor as well. The ability to uh, trust your, your training partners to not damage your leg as you try to escape this. And, and, and a lot of times it seems like I'm good for one escape, and if I get it, I get it, and if I don't, um, I just tap. And, it, and a lot of times that gray area of I've nearly escaped, they're going to do that follow-up attack, that's when people get in trouble with leg locks. And, and if you're not training with somebody who you trust to not – you know, damage your leg, you're not going to get those counters to the follow-up or your, your follow-ups aren't going to get developed as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely. There's, there's, um, knowledge is power in, on these type of things as well for both guys. So uh, if I'm comfortable, we're talking about leg locks. If I'm comfortable with, with a heel hook and I drill a heel hook, I'm comfortable with, with where I can use the boundaries of control versus, uh, actually cranking on something, um, I, I should be able to put a heel hook on with with the total control of of you're not escaping or you're rolling around, but I'm locked onto you without actually doing any damage to your your joint unless you try to escape the wrong way, um, which it would be you know if you're not sure of what the escape is, then you just tap. If you know <laughs> what the escape is and you're trying your first sequence of escape, and I'm under 
good control, then there's this there's this sort of agreement that needs to come. Uh, and I think this this happens. Uh, this is probably the most common thing with with new people to jujitsu is this agreement or this knowledge of I'm trying my escape, but it's not working, and I'm going to keep trying the same escape, or I'm going to keep trying it, and you know that's when I think after you've tried your first escape, if it, you, you see this amongst two newer guys like an arm lock, I'm arm locking you and you're trying to do this escape. You're trying, you're trying, you're trying. And I'm not, I keep going on the arm lock harder um, rather than understanding, oh, I'm pinning you on your back. I've got your thumb facing the ceiling. My knees are tight. Everything's good. And you're trying your escape. You're just not getting out and nothing is sort of happening. There's a stalemate. Uh, If I'm applying the arm lock, my training partner, I'm not going to go any harder. I'll either a let him out and move to something different, or I'll just hold. And then usually the the guy will go, okay, yeah, you got me after five or six seconds. Oh yeah, you did. You got me. You got me. Okay, good. Um, and that agreement between the both is is important to not get injured. Is that I'm not going to crank your arm further than what I need to to control you. And same with a heel hook. I'm not going to. I'm going to make it about isolating the leg and keeping my body tight onto yours with good positioning rather than cranking this thing any further than I, I need to for control situation. And then uh, escape-wise, I'm going to try my escape, but when it doesn't work and I can no longer – not only when the escape doesn't work, but I can't really move anymore, I need a tap. And he's, oh, you, yeah, for sure you got me. Um, and that's as a coach, I watch that all the time. I try to educate guys on all the time because it's a, that's a that is a, a topic that is harder to educate um, people on because it's a feel. So hey, you know what? You did a great job of trying to escape there, but if you can't get out a little sooner than that, then then just tap. And then you know the other guy applying the move can then allow you out after you tap because that sort of ends the all right, good. I got on the arm lock. Now you get to rehearse your defense and you can escape and then they can keep that role going if they want. It makes it for a nicer training environment. Yeah, I, I kind of – I'm thinking about the, the having to control somebody's body uh, for the submission and just making that – feeling that they're stuck. And uh, That's it. That, that's a big – and having – you've seen – I don't know how many hours of, of live competition you've, you've seen and, and been – uh, not just watched, but been heavily involved in as you've commentated on everything. You're not just sitting there drinking a uh, a beer and, and watching casually. You're actually actively involved in this. Do, do you sometimes notice like um, like a respect between opponents sometimes, or maybe the lack of respect between opponents when they're when they're applying submissions? Yeah, absolutely. If 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 a guy has a you know uh, a name, generally it comes when guys have have done either hurt people in the past or have uh, dynamic submissions and they've done it in the past, we've got a little history, then, yep, I think that those guys generally get the respect of of other high-level competitors. And when the high-level competitor is stuck uh, and something that, that one other competitor could be very dangerous in, well, then, yeah, there's usually that respect given, like, ah, you got me. Um, I think it really depends on the, on the two competitors, you know, how – the willingness of each to get to get hurt. I mean, obviously, if you got two world champions fighting in 
and the open weight together, the the potential for injury uh, because one of them won't tap is most likely going to be higher. <laughs> or if one of them is going to go to sleep is is probably going to be a little higher depending on who they are. I mean, I think it's all relative to who they are as a as an individual and a competitor. Um, but uh, if but I've certainly seen my fair share of guys getting injured, and I've certainly seen my fair share of guys saying, "You know what? You got me." You got me. That was a good one. You got me, and I want to. I want to. I want to live to train tomorrow and not be injured, which I believe is the smartest, the smartest uh, move, especially when you're not talking about getting massive amounts of money for for these tournaments. Yeah, and as I'm, I'm getting older. Uh, um, you only get one body, and, and some of these <laughs> yes. injuries don't go away like they used to, and some of them really will kind of just haunt you for a very long time. Yeah, they come back. I mean, I've been injured uh, a lot in every sport that I've done. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm very injury prone. I guess I play hard and get injured, <laughs> but um, but they 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 you start to feel it. Like, yeah, I'm I'm getting up there now, and I start to feel some of the muscular or tendon injuries that I've had in the past. You start feeling them a little bit. So I I think yeah, you're right. You got one body. Take care, good care of it, um, and. I'm not the one that makes a decision. You know, if I was in that environment, I don't know. If it's an environment where there's so much on the line and it's your life, well, then, you know, you got to make that decision. And that decision probably is, I'm not tapping. I'm going to try to get out of this. Um, but but if it's not your life, it's then, you know, obviously the right thing to do is tap and <laughs> keep training. <laughs> yeah. It's always it's always sad to see somebody get hurt in training from not uh, not an accident, but more just like a stubbornness. I mean, that's that's just unfortunate. Can you think of a of maybe a couple of fighters that are kind of known for for damaging their competition? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I'd say you know I think the most glaringly obvious is uh, Husamar Paul Harris. Okay, I, I think he's probably the glaring. That's just like the most obvious case. He's he's hurt people several times after uh the, the the contest was supposed to be stopped um and i think uh that's just no good you know there's no really no place for that those those matches are hard for me to watch sometimes when, when he's applying a submission it could be any submission but he, he's attacking the feet uh generally or the knee mm-hmm. and like if, when i apply a submission granted i'm not doing it for any money or anything like that but i'm anticipating a tap so when I see the hand actually start to move to tap, and when I feel the first, like, these are all things I'm ready for and ready to to accept that I've got somebody. And then to, to watch somebody like, oh, you hear like the, we talked about already, like the casual watcher or or, uh, or fan versus somebody who actually practices and trains. Um, you know, three taps is quick. No, three taps is a long time uh, to have your arm or leg in a spot. And it's a long time to be applying something. I can't, I mean... Does that you get what I'm saying on this? Yeah, no, absolutely. Because uh, when you're the guy, especially if we're at the the level uh, that we're talking here is the highest level of competition um, that he is involved in, and when you're when when that first tap comes, the guy that's tapping has already waited until the last possible second to tap. He's not. They're not tapping early. Uh, especially if it's another high-level guy, they are tapping at the last second when something's going to go. And so, by the time the first tap happens, like you said, you're quite right. If if you're if you're that skilled of a submission artist, 
when that tap happens, you're you're expecting it. You're you know that you've got the guy's limb beyond where they can defend at that point. The tap comes and you let it go. This by the second or third, like you said, which could be feel like an eternity if you're the guy in the submission. Um, yeah, you've most likely already started to hurt the guy, um, and there is real no there's no real argument at at the highest levels because there are things like instant replay there are things like uh yeah there's camera angles from all over so you can't really argue oh i I thought the ref wouldn't see it or anything like this well there's cameras everywhere in mma and they're gonna replay that and see if that guy tapped like if it was that controversial so um so yeah I, i there's really no excuse for that and that kind of behavior and and uh, it, yeah, like you said, three taps is an eternity if you're getting your arm busted. Yeah, and it's an eternity if you're applying this to me. If I'm applying the submission, like I couldn't imagine continuing to put pressure, uh, not just hold steady, but add pressure to that submission. If somebody's trying to tell me to stop, like that's that, that would be a long time as well to be offensive with that. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a very good point. So uh, today we're doing this interview. It's uh, February eighth, and and uh, this will air, I think, on uh, March fourteenth. But we. Uh, Paul Harris does have a, a match coming up uh, a little after this this airs. Um, he's got he's got Gary Tonin. Um, what do you think about that? I, I think uh, you know Gary's a good friend of mine. Is um, one of the guys at Henzo's. Is uh, John uh, Danaher looks after him now quite quite extensively. Uh, uh, super super competitor. Um, very talented, well rounded guy. Good wrestling. Very good uh, leg locks. Great at scrambling against a, a big, huge beast um, that has a reputation of hurting people. Uh, my initial thoughts are, wow, this is, this is an interesting match. Um, but my, my second thought is, why the heck are you doing this? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and my, my thing is, I haven't spoken to Gary about it yet or, or John or anything like that, but my, my thing is, is simple, is simply this. Um, if I'm, if I'm if I'm those guys, if I'm Gary or his managers or, or anything like this, I'm putting it on the event that uh, I think it's Polaris, which is a, a fantastic yeah. event. I, 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 li- I like what their guys are doing, but I'm putting it on them. I'm going to put something on them in my contract that says if Paul Harris hurts me after the bell, if he does get a submission and he hurts me after your guys are, are – after I tap and the referee stops it and he continues to apply a submission, well, then I want the event to get in trouble. I want the event to pay my medical bills, my rehab. If my ACL is blown, I'm seven months out of training now. Um, so that that it's not just Paul Harris that is 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 the problem because you know Paul Harris. If he injures you, what happens? He gets booted from the event. Like whoop de doo, you're the one walking in a cast for the next seven months. So I think that there needs to be a step up on the organization's levels that are going to have this guy in um, because he's proven in the past. I mean, he's been banned from everything that he's fought in. Um, and I think that that's a danger that you got to take a look at. You got to say, Hey, all right, man, we're, we're, and maybe he does. I, I haven't talked to Gary. Maybe he, maybe the event did say, Hey, if this happens, we'll, we're going to pay for everything and give you seven months. If you're at your ACL, we're going to give you seven months of compensation to make, you know, I have no idea. But um, to me, it's a little bit of a silly match because there's, there's not, people don't like Paul Harris. They don't like him. He's not, he's not a fan favorite. Um, They, they, I, 
I, I don't know what the allure is. If Gary beats him, I'm not sure what he's beating at this point. Um, you know, he's beating a guy that's extremely good at jujitsu. Guy's amazing at jujitsu. Guy's amazing at footlocks. But he's he outweighs Gary by probably 35 pounds. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting match, but I don't really see the allure of it, to be honest. Yeah, I, I agree. I I don't know if I want to watch it. Not, I, not be, Even if Gary gets out of it, uh, I don't want to promote the idea of, of Paul Harris continuing to compete and, uh, and, and, and the way he does, I mean, with a track record like his, um, it's, it's kind of a scar on the, on, on, on grappling. Yeah, precisely. Like I, I, Gary is so fun to watch. There are so many other people that are interesting for me to, for him to fight, um, or to fight again or, you know, but, but, but that one, yeah, like exactly as you pointed i think it's almost like why are we supporting a guy that's been proven to to hurt guys um in every event that he's been in in every major event um it's just a shame too because he's very talented he's a talented guy he's fun to watch i i've learned some things by watching his leg locks and stuff but but again like you if you're if you're hurting people then you can't be supported yeah i mean it, it i guess it could be considered a shame but i I'm not missing out on anything if he never competes again. I mean, it, like you say, Gary's funner to watch. I think the the attractiveness of this particular fight is that um, it's a big risk. I mean, it's it's not just a submission only. It's a, a possible hospitalization, a surgery match. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like it's a maybe people want to watch that aspect of it, but that's. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Gary. Hopefully, Gary's not the only one taking risk in this, um, as far as. You know, hopefully he's compensated and covered. As if he does get hurt, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't either. I mean, he's extremely talented, and I can see him uh, certainly putting Paul Harris in some nasty submissions that could send Paul Harris there as well. Uh, but, uh, but, but, like I, yeah, the, if there's a risk of somebody hanging on, Gary's not going to be hanging on after the bell rings and uh, or after the tap comes. But uh, vice versa, the other way around. Uh, it's not sure of what's to be said about if if he is the one tapping. So, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> kind of uh, kind of a little bit of a downer there as as I consider this, but uh, it it'll be interesting if if uh, if they both are able to. It's a it's a ways out from now, but uh, it uh, wish wish both of them luck, and I hope it's a clean fight, and, and I hope it's uh, as entertaining as it sounds like it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that event, you know. Polaris is a really great event. I mean, I've I've, I've watched uh, several of the others, and I like it. So, not, not taken away from anything that they're doing, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that that that's sort of a. There's some other good fights to be had with with Gary for sure. Have you ever been injured in a in a tournament, or has it always been in training? No, I've been injured uh, in competition a few times actually. Um, one time, the most major one was probably I, I tore the muscle. Uh, between my shoulder and my lat, clean off the bone, um, and uh, that was probably the most pain. One of the most painful injuries I've ever had. I had to fight the rest of the match with one ar- one hand um, because I, I did it early in the in the match, and and I couldn't use my left arm really at all uh, through the rest of the the fight, which was a, a little bit of a bummer, but uh, <laughs> and painful. Um, and I've also uh, torn my LCL uh, in. At tournaments as well like basically doing pulling my leg up to do a plata 
popped it in a, in a match. Um, but uh, most of them were in training. Most of them were in training. Yeah. How did how did you injure your shoulder? What was happening? I, I arm drag did an arm drag single leg, and uh, where we f- were fighting or uh, competing it was a uh, no gi match was in a gymnasium, and it was in Florida, and the gymnasium was ice ice cold, and we were outside warming up, and uh, they had called my for my match and uh i was well warm sweaty and when i went into the gym there were so many things going on that just delayed the whole entire thing probably got delayed 20 or 30 minutes at least and i kept asking them hey i need to go back outside to stay warm it's freezing cold in this gym and that you know they, they all know we're gonna go any minute it's one of those things we're going any minute and we're going any minute and so i think my body just cooled off and uh, the very first, right out of the gate, I did an arm drag single, and when the guy started to sprawl, just yeah, the muscle just popped, and uh, yeah, it was a bummer. It was a bummer. Wow. It, it, like I said, it was one of the more painful injuries I've ever had, um, and yeah, and uh, I still have a big knot there. I never got it attached again. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, um, that's. I guess that's something that you have with you now. I guess, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, t- speaking to speaking to the newer um, jujitsu practitioners on this podcast, uh, injuries are going to happen. There, there. Hopefully, it'll be an accident. They're going to happen all the time. Um, but I, ha- I have a very systemized way of dealing with them because I've dealt with them for so long. And one of the things that I would uh, uh, really recommend or advise if you do get injured. Um, to avoid some frustration is is don't stop your don't stop your schedule. So even if you're if you're training twice a week, don't don't stop going to jujitsu. If you can go and sit on the sidelines and just take notes and observe, uh, that that's one of the big things I think uh, throughout my injury lifespan is that I never stopped going to the school. Anytime I was injured, I would always go and I'd sit on the mats and I'd watch my my teammates and my instructors training and watch the techniques and so that really helped me get through you can do a lot of stuff while you're injured to continue your progress there's a lot that can be done yeah i i fairly recently uh my lower back was acting up and i had to step off the mat for a couple weeks and um i i would go to class because that's where my friends are and and that's that's where i want to be it's a certain night and i'm off that night uh that's a habit and a routine i've worked into my life and i don't want to disrupt that and so I'd go and I'd and watch and have fun and, and pick up a few things. And, and I, I learned a lot watching uh, the students roll because I, I get to see how they roll with each other better than when I'm always on the mat just getting one after the other. It, it, uh, it was interesting for me to watch that. So I, I definitely agree. Go if you're injured and just, just make the most of it when you get there. Yep, you are you're ahead of the game there. You're a bright young man, uh, <laughs> and, and it's true. You know, watching is one of the most important ways to learn. Especially, you get a now when you're on the sidelines, you get to watch the people that you're training with on a daily routine. Like you might have a hard time um, with a guy that does a great knee cut, and he's giving you he passes your guard with knee cut all the time. But then you see one of your other train partners successfully defending yeah. his knee cut. And you're gonna like, hey, what is he doing? All right, I'm gonna start doing this, and all of a sudden. You've got some of your answers for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as a when you're on the mat, if, if you're giving somebody a hard time with a part of your game and they ask how to defeat it, I try to give advice, but usually I'll just point them to somebody else who defeats it and let them <laughs> give it to them. You know, cut me out as a middleman because they know what they're doing, not me. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. You've you've coached a lot and you've competed a lot. Um, what are some of your ideas about coaching a match while it's actually happening? Um, give technical uh, pr- instruction. I, I there's a. Uh, uh, Matt Sarah is one of. I just watched uh, an episode of. Uh, I think it's called Looking for a Fight, um, and uh, it, it made me laugh hysterically uh, because he was coaching a guy from outside the ring, technical advice, and then there was this uh, ring announcer who was just basically uh, telling, saying how his guy was going to lose and. He has no business coming to this state to fight, and there's not going to be any hand, easy handouts. And you know that's not coaching. And then you know, they, uh, obviously Matt called him out, and the guy was said like, "Hey, I'm coaching." Like, no, you're not. Co- coaching is giving uh, your your student fighter, whatever you want to call him, technical advice, and it it isn't about just cheerleading. There's a big difference between cheerleading. And coaching, and you need to be a, do a little bit of both, but it should never be in disrespect to the other competitor or the other team. Um, that drives me nuts, and I hear it all the time. And I want to pull a Matt Sarah sometimes, and I, I mean, sometimes if you're, we, we used to do that, but uh, you know, but it drives me nuts when coaching is it becomes oh his arm lock isn't shit, you know, excuse my language, <laughs> and uh, and that's not coaching. That isn't coaching. The coaching is, hey, you know, here his arm lock's coming on your left side, his foot's on your hip, take the foot off your hip. That's that's coaching. Um, and it drives me nuts because there are several people that are very disrespectful to other competitors and to other teams because they don't understand what true coaching is. Um, and so, yeah, it should be technical insights to, to what's coming and just guidance. I mean, at the point where your fighter is well-trained, you just need to give them guidance, you know, that – for me, it doesn't have to be everything that's going on, but it needs to be technical guidance that they can hear, comprehend, and perform. I've benefited a lot from coaching um, while training, you know, both giving and, and receiving that. Um, it, you recommend that as well if you've got somebody, like let's say you're injured and you're hanging out of class and you may be up upper belt. Uh, coach a couple of the people who are rolling and, and let them work with your feedback versus just kind of watching them train. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, obviously uh, that's that's up to the instructor on the floor. You know, if I was a student, I would always get permission from my instructor to do so. Um, that way, it just doesn't cause uh, mass chaos. But but um, I think that's a it's a very good idea to coach in the training environment and to be coached um, because it says something for where you are with your focus. So if if I'm training and I can hear my clearly hear my coach without looking. Without and and I can execute what someone is saying to me while under a pressured environment, it means I'm pretty dialed in. I may I'm focused, I'm in tune with what's going on, and I'm in control of my surroundings. Um, and that needs to be rehearsed and practiced because when you go to a competition environment, if you've if sometimes the first time you compete, unless you're a naturally good competitor, sometimes the first time you compete, all you hear is. It's Charlie Brown, like wah 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 wah, and you can't hear anything, and it's just like this fog over you, and is, and you're just like, what just happened? And you know that can happen in tournaments. So when you're able to dial in, and then all of a sudden you start hearing your coach, it's like an epiphany in a tournament. Like, wow, I'm focused in, I'm I'm right where I should be, and I can just allow my reactions and my instincts to take over with a little bit of guidance from that heavenly voice that I'm hearing. You know, yeah. 
So are you mostly coaching um, in the aspect of defense or offense? Are you telling, like, do your arm bar, or are you saying watch out for that arm? Yeah, bo- both, you know, because both are important. And when it's the training environment, um, I'll often let my guys know who I'm going to coach or if I'm coaching one guy in offense, I'll try to let that offense happen. And then if there's a guy defending or having trouble, I may coach them through the defense or I may let the whole – depending on the scenario, I may let the whole entire offense happen. If it's an arm lock, coach the guy through an arm lock and he gets the, the finish. And then I'll, I won't just leave it at that. I'll, I'll work with the guy that just got arm lock. Hey, listen, let me show you how to tighten your defense up a little bit. But I, I wanted to coach that guy through the offense because he's been struggling with his arm lock, things like that. I think you have to know your your – your team, your students, and the environment that they're in so that you can get someone to perform the technique uh, all the way through succession um, so that those things become ingrained in their head. And and then, of course, coach the other guy either after the move is over, help them out with their defense. But I think both offense and defense are so important. So, yeah, all, all parties. Do you recommend this style of coaching, like actively um, giving technical advice uh it fades at higher levels or is it always there and and always important it's always important always 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 important it's just at the higher levels you can do it less often and and with less uh detail so not detail but less of the the time through it it might be little things like get your knee tighter those little cues that a guy that's already near mastered an arm lock per se just needs a reminder of under pressure so he might need a reminder he might need um sort of a look to the the future so if if he starts the arm lock and you see that the guy starts the defense you can give him that indication a a corner guy is like you know you can see things from the outside that the guy can't see in the inside. So you, you have to give them. You have to give those insights while to guide the, your your competitor through that match, um, almost like he can see into the future of what's going to happen because you can sort of see that from the outside better than you can on the inside. Yeah, it it, it it's funny if you're being coached. You know, listen, it makes a big deal. Um, you know, I could, <laughs> I could I could I could grab a purple belt. And, and if they're getting coached by somebody who's um, who knows my game, it's like they're rolling like a brown belt all of a sudden. It's like they're doing yeah, the, man, yeah. They, they could do the deal. things. Yeah. It's a big, big deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's very important. And we see at the highest levels uh, great coaching uh, make a – Make a huge difference, you know, and not to get too far off topic, but I know that uh, was a heated, sort of a heated environment about um, it's not jujitsu, but in MMA, some of the coaches that have gotten their people into or not been the best coach in that specific environment, you know, like Ronda Rousey's last fight, I think it was really controversial over over the coach in the corner and and what was happening and how she was coached throughout that whole match and you know there, there were a lot of cheerleading and uh, going on and and there were te- there were definitely some technical insights um but uh to 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 prep her for that fight um uh i think she could put uh holly home exactly where she wants if she would has the right coach and the right preparation um uh, i i don't I don't think it would be a difficult environment to put Holly home in a clinch because that's where Ronda wants to be is in a clinch. But when you're trying to box a, a very good boxer and you're not using wrestling, because uh, for her, just to, I know we're getting a little off topic, fine, but for yeah. her, her, she's a judo 
expert. Like her judo is just out of control. So where she where she likes to be is either with a headlock, an overhook, or an underhook from the clinch. Well, if you have an under good ogoshi, she does this throw that's ogoshi. If you have a great ogoshi, which is this underhook, you have an underhook, you your your hands around the waist, you step in front, and it's like a big major hip throw. If you have the level of throw that she has um, in that position, you need to know how to wrestle because the, the easiest way to get into an underhook for a judo player is to have a great single leg or a great double leg because the defense to the single and the double, when not when we're shooting down to our knees and sprawling, but when we're up on our feet, is to pull the person up. So you pull them up. So if, if she's on a single or a double, Holly Holm is going to make an overhook and pull her up. And voila, she's right into a clinch where she wants to be, and she could hit her throw or at least attempt it. I don't, you know, I to say that she could beat her, I have no idea because I don't know how good they both are in their in that in that element. But she could be in that clinch uh, with much more uh, efficiency if she had a great preparation yeah. uh, for that environment. Um, so I think that. Coaching comes prior to the match, during the match, and after the match as well. Something that Danaher always does, uh, always did with uh, George St. Pierre and Faraz, big believer in that, is even after he, even after he wins, they still go in the back and they're, and they're still going to coach him through some of the more difficult times that he's had in that particular fight. They, they still go and coach right there, right then and there. Are you content with defending your world champion yes and then they go and look at the problems right then and there they don't wait for a week after it's immediately um that's great coaching that's great leadership um so yeah it's uh, very important i think in the success of a competitor and just an enthusiast yeah and, and there's a, there's a, a line between um coaching and strategy as well i think if ronda had the strategy of uh, getting her to the ground and just keeping her there she could have probably implemented that because uh, she was able to take her down. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it. But she immediately went for armbar. And, and she'd clearly been training the armbar defense. But, um, you know, that had been so successful for her in the past. But to just get her to the ground, keep her on the ground, and, and, and make her deal with that pressure, uh, it might have been a lot different fight than just giving it the old 10 seconds and I didn't get my armbar uh, attempt. Um, yeah, a- absolutely. And uh, the way she could put it, get into the clenches is – where I think that her uh, coaching staff uh, was was not up to par yeah. um, on how how to relate her judo skills with her punching and kicking skills, and we call that element shootbox. Uh, uh, that's a, a, a phrase that that you know George and Faraz and John they use, and the, the it's shootbox is the the range of how you grapple with punching and kicking effectively, um, and that seemed you know. I think that's actually a, a skill set in MMA that is widely misunderstood. Is uh, the relationship between really high level shootbox uh, and getting and the match on the ground? Like um, Dominic Cruz just recently show, showcased some extremely good shootbox skills and put uh, Dillashaw down, even though he couldn't hold him down for very long. Uh, he put him down pretty well um with good timing and and pretty effortless yeah that was that was an amazing fight um oh, man, yeah. <laughs> uh, have, it's been really fun talking to you um where could we go to keep up with you and, and what you're doing 
Uh, yeah, uh, my my blog is uh, is coming out. Uh, it should be out by the time this thing goes. It's uh, seanwilliamsbjj.com. Uh, I'm just starting a blog that you know shares tips and techniques and video breakdowns and makes jujitsu uh, a little easier for everybody in the world i hope uh and uh yeah you can go on there and and check it out and uh i hopefully will have a feedback column by that point so if you have questions or comments you can you can uh reach out and and get a hold of me through that cool i'm i'm excited about um about your your blog coming out here, tell me like, do you have anything? You know, it's still like like I've been before. Uh, uh, February February eighth is what we're at right now, so it's coming out a little bit later. Hopefully, the site's up and running uh, by the time this airs. But what do you have in mind? Do you have like a a certain topic that that you really want to get out first, or anything like that? No, just just you know, I I want to focus first off and like making jujitsu easier for people, um, and and. Uh, the the success that I've had with all my coaches and um, all my mentors, uh, I think I've got a lot of good stories. I've been in this thing almost 20 years, and, and I really take pride in my lineage. Um, I think that Henzo's lineage is, is amongst the best in the entire planet. Uh, and my wrestling, uh, I've had amazing coaches in wrestling. Um, a friend of mine named Warren Stout uh, and Dave Esposito, they've been in really guidance. And, and since I've moved here in L.A., uh, I've been wrestling with Rico Ciparelli um, off and on. And I, I believe that that guy is probably the, the best American technician on the planet in wrestling uh it just he's just really an, an incredible human um when it comes to wrestling the prowess and knowledge and skill um and i i've recently touched base with jimmy pedro and trying to learn more judo and so i i, I take a lot of pride in in trying to learn from the best in the planet um and make uh and if i can translate that in and make that, that, those skills bring them all together and make things easier for people who don't have those opportunities. Um, then that's my goal, you know. Yeah, Sean, we're getting kind of things wrapped up here, but I want to kind of put you to the test here because you're in a spot where you train a lot, and you and you're you're doing a lot of jutsu. A lot of people are in the spot where they train twice a week. And you want to make jujitsu easier for them. What could somebody that trains a couple times a week uh, be doing, or maybe changing, or, or evaluating to to make it an easier process? Um, stay consistent. It's great. That's a great topic. Stay consistent for number one. Um, not get sidetracked. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. Um, you 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 have a, a, a compare yourself to technique, not to individuals. Um, watch tapes. Watch and study. Uh, good competition footage is is very important. Um, uh, that's something that uh, I'll be releasing, and hopefully, it'll be done by then. Is how to study tape. If you never, if you don't know how to study tape, uh, I'm putting a piece out on it. Uh, hopefully, it'll be ready by that point. Um, so study study good competition guys, and and like we talked about earlier, is have a great time, have fun with it, and understand that this thing takes time, and give yourself time. Make it a lifelong journey, not a I want to get my black belt in two-year journey. Cool. All great advice, and I'm looking forward to the, uh, the website being up and running there and, and, uh, and being a, a follower of that. And Do you have an email list or something people could do to make sure they get notified when it's up? When... Yeah, it's on there right now on SeanWilliamsBJJ.com. So uh, by the time this comes out, if that's still there, great. If it's not, I'll have a little uh, – it'll be on the side sidebar uh, that there'll be an email list to, to jam on for, for – tips and techniques to your email excellent 
Uh, it's been. I appreciate being here, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I'm happy to have you on the show again sometime. Oh, I'd love to. All right. Well, thank you for the interview, Sean. Thank you, sir. I want to thank Sean Williams again for the interview. It was a lot of fun getting to talk to him for the first time, and, and he's just he's part of jujitsu history, and he's not in the past either. You know, like he's not staying there; he's he's staying active in, in the community. And uh, I, to me, his commentary on the on the live um, grappling matches is still like, especially when I was brand new. Like he he tells you why they're doing every little detail that they're doing and, and how important it is, and, and but. Still now, it's it still adds great value to the to the broadcast and and uh, just to kind of consider him, you know, kind of a friend now of the show and and somebody we've, we've got to learn from uh, over interview will make those even more enjoyable to listen to. So, uh, thanks, Sean, uh, for the interview, and uh, we look forward to hearing you in the future. Yeah, like what you said, Byron, about he is such a good commentator that you know he's explaining what's going on and, and stuff like that, but. You think how he's probably grown jujitsu based off his commentary. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people who really don't know about jujitsu, trying to watch his jujitsu match, and and just not getting into it. But when you have a commentator who's explaining what's going on, making it easier for somebody not in the know to watch it, you, you're gonna have more people who are gonna tune in, more people who are gonna try the sport. So I, I just, when you were talking about that, it made me think about how he's probably grown jujitsu. Just through his commentary. His commentary is so good. I bet people have trained jiu-jitsu just because of that. Yeah. If you think about jiu-jitsu, it's kind of like the opposite of a lot of sports. As a, as a kid, maybe um, you grew up in a house where basketball was real big or football, and you watch it on TV, and when you get old enough, you start to try to try to do it. And you know, most of us are not uh, you know, NBA or NFL or whatever uh, acronym hey, of speak letters. For yourself, Byron. Most not not the entire podcast uh, show, uh, crew here. Gary has competed at very high levels in multiple sports, but uh, you you watch it first, and then you try you try it. And jujitsu, nobody really watches jujitsu. And then and then, this is what I want to do. A lot of times MMA will help be that gateway drug, but like you end up on the mats and you're trying it, and then like yeah, I should watch some people compete. You know, like that's a cool thing to do. But for the few people that do watch it first, it's so valuable to, to have that commentary. And for me, when I'm trying to figure out what they're doing, he knows. So even for an, somebody who, who trains quite a bit, um, you know, to, to watch the match, and he'll say, look at his right hand. You know, if he can break that grip um, that, that the guy has with his right hand, this whole move, this whole position is going to fall apart. And so you're watching intently at this technique and while watching that grip. And then when it fails, sure enough, you know, the whole uh, position falls apart or maybe advances for somebody else. And it just makes it that much more interesting and, and fun to watch. Yes, definitely. So hit, hit him up uh, on online there uh, or on social media and uh you go we we are also on social media we have a facebook page a twitter account youtube channel and those sorts of things uh if you're on there look for bjj brick and see if we're on that social media outlet and uh, we want to be where you guys are and also uh don't forget to go on to itunes and uh give us a review uh the more stars the better but no honestly we don't care. Uh, we try to get better, so give us what you think we got. Uh, we do take those to heart, but try to make your review funny. If you make it funny, we will send you out a gee patch. Uh, send us an email at bjgbrick at gmail.com 
or message us on our Facebook page and let us know that was you who sent out the, uh, who gave us the funny review, and that way we can get you out of patch. Sorry, we don't have a lot of money, so we're only giving patches to people in the United States to save on cost. But um, hey, also it'll get you into our uh, our second annual reviewer of the year contest um, that was won uh, last year by the number one reviewer in the nation, Nathan Hadley. So uh, you want to be up there and uh, be up there with Nathan. So uh, get your reviews in. Yeah, there we go. It's uh, it's always fun to read those uh, kind of funny or out there reviews that are that are, that are uh, poking at us or just. Uh, Nathan did a great job with that. He he definitely teased Gary a bit, and uh, I appreciated that. <laughs> if you have any, I'm like, sure you did, Byron. If you have any like real actual like mean comments, send them to bjbrick at gmail dot com, and uh, and we'll hash it out over the uh, interwebs. Or meet Gary on the mat, and Gary will take care of things from there. Yeah, there's nothing better than uh, interweb war. Yeah. Those are always good because uh, I can lie about my skills and how big I am and nobody will ever know. <laughs> That's what we do best over here, Kerry. Yeah. Um, and speaking of the geek patches, I was down to two over here and uh, we just got a new shipment of them in. So we're we're stocked back up uh, into the geek patch business. Um, the the geek patch we give out for free is uh, a little bit on the small side, I would say. It's Is it maybe, I don't know, two or three inches across? We do have... Gary, this is new. I hadn't told this to you yet, Gary. Oh, see, yeah. Hey, thanks for not telling me. We we have a large gee patch, not large, not huge, but it, like it's a five inch gee patch. These were quite a bit more expensive, and I think we haven't done anything with them yet. I just got them sitting in this box over here. But eventually, we'll set them up. If you want to support the show uh, somehow, we'll make it to, uh, to where you could buy it, and uh, and the money will go to support the show and help me and Gary out here. But uh, haven't quite figured that out yet. There's going to be some sort of a PayPal or some sort of a, a way to, I don't know. Gary, this is all complicated, and it's, I'm having to, to figure things out on the computer again. So, uh, But um, eventually, eventually, we'll figure out how to, how to distribute some, uh, some gee patches. And we've talked about, you know, people ask about shirts and stuff like that. But really, shirts is a whole different business because you need, like, all the different sizes and colors and all this stuff. And then they also have these places that will make you shirts on demand, but they charge like 30 bucks for a shirt. And then they give you like $2. So like, I don't know, that seems like a, a bad deal for everybody in that sort of a thing. But we now have five inch patches. I, I haven't figured out how to get, actually put them up for sale uh, for our uh, listeners that want to support us um, with a, with a few bucks anyway. And uh, we'll, we'll figure that out hopefully in the next couple of weeks. So definitely be on the lookout for five-inch key patches. There we go. Not huge, but quite a bit. It seems huge compared to the uh, the one we give away uh, for the uh, reviews. But uh, anyway, so let's get some exciting news, Gary, I think. Yeah, and hey, speaking of more exciting news, next week we have on the guy who brought us our biggest listenership of the week. We had the most uh, downloads from him last time we had him on the show, so we expect another great show, but... Uh, we have the legendary John Will on next week, so do not miss it. Yeah, we're talking about all things jiu-jitsu. We're talking about um, he's from Australia. He does a lot of crazy like uh, you know, backpacking adventures. We talk about that a little bit too and, and uh, just everything. You know, the, the, I, I really learned a lot from how they teach kids' classes and, and how, they, how they keep that fun and, and always keep the learning at a high level. So um, next week is going to be a great interview with – uh, John Will. Gary, before we get too close to the end of the show, 
Uh, oh yeah. yeah, yep. I got to remind everybody to uh, if you go through the Midwest, uh, don't forget to train with us. At, uh, uh, just send us a line uh, if you get here in Wichita, Kansas, and we'd love to train with you. So, yep. Thanks for reminding me, Byron. Yeah, hey, Gary, you're trying to weasel out of something here. I could tell uh, by by the way you're kind of trying to end the wrap the show up. But well, you know, if they no, do want to no, train no, with no. us, if they do want, they could email us at bjjbrick at gmail dot com. But uh, the music is telling us that this is time for a very special segment, Gary. What would that be, Byron? Gary's audiobook of the week. Oh, not again. Not again. So this is the part of the show when I throw a random audiobook title at Gary, and he must come up with some sort of a, uh, of a plot or uh, actual substance to this audiobook. And lately, Gary, what I've been doing is typing the title of the audiobook on our uh, show notes, and it's on the website. So someday... Somebody is going to like Google some terms similar to this, and they're going to pop up with our podcast, and it's going to be like, "Oh, somebody already somebody wrote this book. This is a terrible and idea." Now contact me. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. <laughs> so, Gary, you're getting lots of credit for working on a lot of books that uh, online. I've never anyway. done. Yeah. So, uh, your audiobook this week, my friend: Cafeteria Food Fights: Picking the Right Kind of Fruit for the Salad. You know, I figured it was going to probably have something to do with fruit salad since I brought that up three or four times. Yes, you did. Um, yes, you did. Yeah, but, you know, this is a, a very important book for uh, surviving your adolescence. You think uh, um, there's always food fights happening in the in the lunchroom. Uh, there's always going to be some knucklehead who's going to start it. And uh, if you're not prepared, you could take a beating. I mean, uh, you have to know what you can get away with because... Uh, Sometimes, if you use bigger fruit, let's say apples, oranges, or grapefruits, and you throw those pretty hard, man, that's an assault charge right there. Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, you get hit, you know, from 10 feet away by a, by a kid who pitches on his Little League baseball team and throws <laughs> on grapefruits. That could break a nose. So, you've got to be smart. Uh, so, I mean, stuff like strawberries, grapes, strawberries, especially with whipped cream on them. I know we talked about that earlier. That's even better because it splatters when it hits. But, uh, you know, I consider myself a solid purple belt with four stripes and, and, uh, and uh, fruit throwing. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but it's all about the type of fruit, you know, you do throw. And, you know, stay away from the knucklehead, the guy who's going to throw the, the apples. Because you do not, you want to be on that guy's side. So, so get, make sure you're on the same side as the crazy guy so you don't get hit with that. But well. it's just a... It's just a good audio book that'll help you survive um, food fights in the middle school cafeteria. Uh, Gary, so definitely check it out. The thing I am most interested in about this book is chapter four. Your interview. Chapter four, I did put you, a lot of time. In your interview with Gallagher was phenomenal. Well, you know, Gallagher, I think, went a little overboard. <laughs> the nice thing is, he didn't necessarily throw the watermelons. Because, I mean, you throw a watermelon, I mean, first of all, you need to have a lot of strength in your core and in your shoulders because most people can't really throw watermelons that far. But he figured out a better way to do that. He just took a watermelon, put it on the table, put his glasses on, safety glasses, safety first, guys, and then pulled out an eight-pound sledgehammer and smashed it. But since he had so much force when he smashed the watermelon, everything went flying. You know, watermelon seeds, juice, and he made sure he used the seeded watermelons, not the seedless watermelons, the ones with seeds. So, um, yeah, it was a very good article, but 
I would not recommend bringing a sledgehammer to middle school. You could get in a little bit of trouble for that. So uh, we, we did talk about that at the very end, that uh, we don't want people to get kicked out of school. There you go. And uh, for the for the younger folks in our uh, listening audience, I will put a link to uh, some kind of a Gallagher video on the show notes, and uh, you can check that out. Uh, basically, a comedian in the '80s, maybe, and he would smash fruit. And yeah, it was quite a, uh, amusing. What a concept! What a yeah! What a gimmick <laughs> that was. I mean, the, the man... guy made a fortune <laughs> for smashing fruit, making fruit salad in the audience. Yeah, so. I mean, there's some crazy stuff that people have made fortunes with. A guy makes fortune for smashing fruit. Another guy makes a fortune and throws it all away for eating Subway sandwiches. <laughs> Only in America can this happen. There we go. All right, guys. Well, we'll check you out next week, as always. Uh, stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to shower. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. That's pretty good. Gallagher, chapter four. <laughs> My interview with Gallagher. That was great. It's easier for me because as you're talking, I could think about like what I could say. You know what I mean? Like you just have to go. You know what I mean? Chapter four. <laughs> Like at first I was like Gallagher and I was like, Oh, that's right. He's the guy who smashed watermelons. Uh, Chapter four. That's right. He uh he's very important in your book. Yeah, that was pretty good.